We continue with our series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And we come today to Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 to 21. It's quite possible that your Bible has a heading for this section, something like the rider on the white horse or the white rider. And when I read that, I thought to myself, isn't that something out of the Lord of the Rings? And sure enough, when I had a look, there it was, book three, chapter five, the white rider. For those of you who haven't read the book or seen the movie, the chapter describes the return of Gandalf the wizard. Deep in the mines of Moriah, on a narrow bridge, Gandalf had sacrificed himself for his friends by facing the mighty Balrog and being dragged down into the abyss. But now he appears to his friends, all dressed in white, having overcome this great enemy and even the abyss itself. And his friends are overjoyed at his return, and they are emboldened in their quest to overcome their enemy, Sauron, and all his dark forces in Isengard. Aragon, who is in fact the one true king, says to his companions, The dark lord has nine riders, but we have one, mightier than they, the white rider. He has passed through the fire and the abyss, and they shall fear him. We will go where he leads. And then a few chapters later, we read how Gandalf appears outside the besieged fortress called Helm's Deep, and how his very appearance on the battlefield brings to an end a decisive battle. Uh, let me read to you how J.R.R. Tolkien describes the scene. There suddenly upon a ridge appeared a rider, clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the low hills the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot, their swords were in their hands. Amid them strode a man tall and strong. His shield was red. As he came to the valley's brink, he set to his lips a great black horn and blew a ringing blast. Behold, the white rider, cried Aragon, Gandalf is come again. The hosts of Isengard roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. Again the horn sounded from the tower. Down the hills leapt Shadowfax, like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was upon them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell on their faces before him. The orcs reeled and screamed and cast aside both sword and spear. Like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees, and from that shadow, none ever came again. It's a wonderful scene, and it stirs something deep within us, because isn't that what we all long for? The triumph of good and the final defeat and elimination of evil. And that longing within us, as expressed in Lord of the Rings and the myths of ancient Greece and Rome, and even in the latest Avengers movie, that longing for the triumph of good over evil exists within us because actually it reflects a future reality, an actual event that will take place at the end of history. 
And in Revelation chapter 19, John describes this event to us. Let's have a look. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is God's word. How do you view the man called Jesus? Over time, there have been many versions of him presented to the world. Jesus, the pale Galilean, perpetuated in medieval art and stained glass windows with a heavenly halo and a colorless complexion. Jesus, the wise and ethical sage, the teacher of good common sense. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, disconnected from the real world, but quite useful for little children. To many people today, Jesus appears unimpressive and uninteresting and irrelevant. The last book of the Bible is a revelation, not primarily a revelation of world history or of future events, but rather the revelation of a person. The opening sentence of this book is the key to interpreting the rest of the book. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation reveals Jesus to us. It gives us a picture of who he truly is and what a picture it is. Chapter 19 is in fact the ninth and second to last great picture of Jesus in the book. And like the other pictures that we've seen, it's not to be taken literally or put on a drawing board. Rather, John uses symbolic picture language to convey truths about Jesus to us that mere prose would not capture. Pastor John Stott says in his commentary, 
it is almost impossible to visualize the mounted portrait of the Messiah with his eyes on fire, his head with many crowns, his mouth holding a sword, his hand brandishing a scepter while his feet are treading out the grapes. Symbolically, however, it is a spectacular picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in majesty, power, authority and justice coming to destroy the powers of evil. So let's have a closer look at this picture and what it tells us about Jesus and what it tells us about ourselves too. We're going to focus on Jesus' appearance, his names and his action. Let's have a look firstly at his appearance. John begins in verse 11 by saying, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. You may remember that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die on the cross, he rode on a donkey, a humble beast of burden. Now, however, he rides a horse, which is an animal of war, and white is the colour of victory. John's main focus, however, is not on the horse, but rather on its rider. And the first thing we read about him in verse 12 is that his eyes are like blazing fire. That was one of the first things that we were told about Jesus all the way back in chapter 1. When John first saw the Lord Jesus, he was struck by the fact that he had eyes like blazing fire. We're going to see in a moment that the white rider judges with justice. And one of the reasons that he judges with perfect justice is because of these eyes. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4 that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. Jesus is able to judge with perfect justice and fairness because of the fact that he sees everything. You and I live out every moment of our lives before God who sees into the depths of our hearts and minds, which is both a great comfort and also a great challenge. Next we read in verse 12 that on his head are many crowns. In chapter 12, we were told that the great red dragon, Satan, has seven crowns. And in chapter 13, that the beast out of the sea has ten crowns. But the Lord Jesus is pictured as having many crowns to show that he has unlimited sovereignty. He rules over everything. Black holes and hummingbirds and sea cucumbers and kings and nations because he is the creator and sustainer of everything. He sovereignly rules over your circumstances today, no matter what you may be going through. In verse 13, we read that he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. It's interesting to see that Jesus the warrior has blood on his robe before the battle begins. Whose blood is it? Well, the message of Revelation chapter 5, the lamb who was slain, and the message of the rest of the New Testament is that the blood in which Jesus' robe is dipped is his own. It's a powerful image that tells us that Jesus won the victory over sin and evil and death when he shed his blood on the cross. 
We will see in a moment that the great battle in this chapter is never fought. And the reason for this is because the victory was won on the cross. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, we read that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's such a powerful image. The fact that the king wins by apparently losing, is victorious through suffering, lives by dying. And it's not just a picture to admire, though. It's also a pattern to follow. We, too, live by dying. Initially, by dying with Christ to sin and being raised with him to a new life, but also by daily taking up our cross and following him, dying to ourselves and so being born to eternal life, sharing in his sufferings and so becoming like him. John tells us next in verse 15 that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It's interesting that in that same passage from Hebrews chapter 4 that we read a moment ago that speaks about the eyes of God, in the verse just before that we read, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And we'll come back to the sword again a little later in the sermon. Well, having looked at something of Jesus' appearance, let's have a look secondly at his names. In this chapter, there are four names that are given to the Lord Jesus. Number one, Jesus is called faithful and true. Verse 11, I saw a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. In other words, Jesus is utterly dependable. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. There is nothing vacillating or wavering or fickle about him. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. We can rely absolutely on Jesus to bring God's purposes to pass. There was a song that we used to sing as children that said, We know he will do all he says he will do. And again then, no matter what you are facing today, you can take Jesus at his word. Read through his word and his promises that are found there. His promise never to leave or forsake us. His promise to forgive and restore us. It's all 100% completely trustworthy. Number two, we are told that Jesus has an unknown name. The second part of verse 12. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. How can Jesus have a name that no one knows? Well, this unknown name teaches us that there is more to understand and know about the Lord Jesus than our finite human minds can fully grasp. Pastor John Stott puts it this way, 
However much we may humbly claim to know about Jesus Christ, there is much that we still do not know. There are depths to the divine human person of Jesus, and there are depths to the finality of the work of Jesus that we have not yet plumbed and that we don't yet understand. Only he knows himself in the fullness and the magnitude of his own person. So it is only on the last day when we see him as he is that we shall know him as fully as a finite being can know him. I think it's important then for all of us to exercise humility when it comes to the person and work of our Lord Jesus. Not to allow our systematic theology to domesticate or reduce him. Not to describe our experiences of him casually or flippantly. Yes, the scriptures teach us that Jesus is our friend and our brother, but he is never our buddy. Certainly he calls us into an intimate relationship with himself, and yet we would do well to remember that the Apostle John, who had been the very closest person to Jesus while he was on earth, had eaten and drank with him, had leaned back against his chest at the Last Supper, and had whispered a question into his ear. John, when confronted with the reality of Jesus' resurrected and ascended person in Revelation chapter 1, had fallen at his feet as if dead. And here we read that there is even more to learn about Christ and his work than even John had understood. Number three, Jesus is named the Word of God. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. We reveal ourselves through our words. When you're sat at home and your wife says to you, what are you thinking about, dear? She can't know unless you speak and reveal it to her. And Jesus, as the word of God, reveals God to us. It's no coincidence that John uses this name because you remember how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's final perfect word. As we read in the book of Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And we'll look at some more of the significance of this again in a moment. And fourthly, Jesus is named as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Verse 16. On his robe and on the robe of his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
that marvellous phrase that makes it into Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. The King who is King over all the other kings. The Lord who is Lord over all the other lords. The one who is in charge of all of the presidents and generals and the world's most powerful men and women. And if this is truly his name, it has very important implications for my life. Again, just a little humility and reverence when I approach him, but also carefulness. Those words, Lord Jesus, roll so quickly off our tongues, but we need to be aware of what we are saying when we call him Lord. Remember Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you do not do what I say? If he is my Lord, then I don't command him, but he commands me. Instead of my asking him to come along with my plans, I humbly follow after him. Well, having looked at something of the person of Jesus in his description and names, let's move thirdly to his action. And it's simply this, that at the end of time, Jesus appears in just judgment to destroy the forces of evil. Verse 11, with justice, he judges and makes war. Towards the end of this chapter, we have a description of the battle that we looked at back in chapter 16, the Battle of Armageddon. Not a battle among nations, but the nations joining together in one final attempt to overthrow God and the king he has set in place. One final attempt to destroy God's people. And it's very interesting to see exactly how Jesus wins the battle. We have this huge build-up in verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But then there's a bit of an anticlimax because there's no description of the actual battle. The next verse. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he'd deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. There's no description of the battle. And the reason there is no description of the battle is because no battle takes place. Jesus wins the battle simply by appearing. As we saw a moment ago, Jesus has already won the battle on the cross. And so Satan and his armies and the kings of the earth and their armies are defeated simply by Jesus' appearing. That's why we read in verse 14 that the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. They're not dressed in armor, carrying swords or shields. They're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, dressed like priests to serve God because the battle is won. Notice too that the only weapon Jesus has is the sword that comes from his mouth. The power of his words, verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down at the nations. And again, verse 21. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Jesus wins simply by speaking. 
In his book on Revelation, Pastor Daryl Johnson points out that it has always been the case. In the beginning was the Word. He said, let there be light, and there was. He said, let there be whales, and there were, out of nothing. He simply spoke into the nothingness, and something came into being. And when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He healed and liberated simply by speaking. On the Sea of Galilee in a storm, Jesus stands up and simply speaks to the wind and the waves, Peace, be still, and it was. At the tomb of Lazarus, a dead man, four days in the grave, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he does, simply because Jesus spoke. The revelation of Jesus Christ is written to bring the first century church back to confidence in Jesus and his word. The church in our century is facing the same crisis. Who is going to win? Caesar and all of his economic and technological power or Jesus with his simple word. This picture of Jesus winning simply by appearing and speaking fits with what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There Paul speaks about the man of lawlessness, a final beast, an antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. But at Jesus' appearing, he will finally judge evil and destroy it. Verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, we've dealt with the subject of God's justice and judgment before, more fully in other sermons. Just to say, though, that the justice of Jesus and his final judgment of the earth are vitally important aspects of his character to bear in mind. Some people have the mistaken idea that the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful, wrathful God, but that the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is a lot nicer and far too much of a gentleman to ever stoop to things like judgment and wrath. But Revelation chapter 19 should disabuse us of that notion forever, because here we have a scene that rivals any picture of God that we have in the Old Testament. God's justice and judgment are expressions of his love. Love defends and fights against anything that seeks to destroy the beloved, just as I would want to fight against and protect my daughters from anyone or anything who wanted to harm them. God cannot look at the horrific things that go on in our world and shrug his shoulders and say, it doesn't matter. If he did that, he would not be a loving God, but rather a monster. No, God will come and finally rid the world of sin and evil and all those who willingly and defiantly perpetuate it. Verses 17 and 18 and 21 are not for the squeamish, are they? And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great, and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Notice you cannot be too big 
to escape this judgment. And you cannot be too small to escape this judgment. But notice very importantly that this dinner invitation is the second of two invitations in Revelation chapter 19. Last week we read chapter 19 and verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Hugh Palmer is the rector at All Souls Church in London, and he has this to say about these two invitations. His words are humorous, but reflect a stark reality. He says, in Revelation chapter 19, invitations go out to two great supper parties, two stunning feasts. The one set of invitations is gold embossed. The other is black-edged. And we will all find ourselves either enjoying the party at the one feast or on the menu at the other. Either we are the bride of Christ at the great wedding of the Lamb or bird food. And if we revolt against this idea, come back again to that picture of the Lord Jesus whose robe is dipped in blood. While in this chapter we read that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, remember that on the cross he himself was placed in the winepress of God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus went through hell so that you and I may never taste hell, but rather enter heaven. In the ancient world, it was considered to be the most awful and shameful thing to have your body left out in the open, unburied, to be eaten by birds. Interestingly, in Israel, it was also considered to be the most shameful thing to be hung on a tree. In fact, the law said that anyone who was hung on a tree was under God's curse. And yet Jesus was hung on a tree, on a cross, becoming a curse for us to redeem us and reconcile us to God. He took our guilt and shame and curse so that we might receive his righteousness. And while his judgment is dreadful, there is no need for anyone to go through it because his death and resurrection are the power of God that saves everyone and anyone who believes. Have you received that today? I began the sermon with a quotation from the Lord of the Rings. Let me end with another quotation, which I've used before because it's one of my favourites. Near the end of the book, we read how the two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, succeed in their mission of destroying the ring of power by throwing it into Mount Doom. And the two of them are overcome by exhaustion and by the fumes of the fiery mountain. But they're rescued and brought to safety, although both are unconscious and unaware of anything else that has taken place, the reappearance of Gandalf or the winning of the great battles. But eventually, Sam comes around, and this is what Tolkien writes. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. Where are we? he asked. And a voice spoke softly behind him. In the land of Ithlian, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white. 
Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? He said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. That's a great question, isn't it? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Revelation chapter 19 is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. All sin and evil will finally be destroyed and you and I will be the guests of honour at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's with this end in mind, with this vision of the one true white rider firmly before us, that you and I can go into this week to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray together.